Now, the very fact that we're addressing issues related to finances is oftentimes considered by some as the, the primary focus of uh, churches. Well, obviously, you all that are part of this church know that that's not true. And I want to tell you, I warned you last week, didn't I? This week and next week, we're still going to be in Second Corinthians 8 and 9 to learn these principles. And uh, we have a great opportunity to hear from the Lord and what he would want in the process of our submitting to him. Now, I, I'm thinking about uh, the Mathesons and uh, the, the joy that they must be going through right now and uh, the joy that the Eatons are going through. Um, we have now a 10-month-old granddaughter, and that was our first. And one of the things that is really interesting in this whole process of having these little ones, of course, they, they talk about how great it is to be grandparents. Oh, it really is. I had no idea, but it is great. Baby needs to be changed. Hey, here you go. Um, <laughs> I love that part of it. Anyway, we, we've been in the process of trying to teach this little one um, things about life. And, you know, the, the process begins kind of at a low level. The, the big thing is first learning to roll over, you know, and, and that first time, that is so exciting. They've, they've rolled over. And then you, you teach them to, to crawl, and they get up on all fours, and, and they're crawling. And that's about as far as we've gotten right now, except for uh, our, our granddaughter likes to verbalize. She does a lot of that, so I'm trying to get her to actually form words. And there's only one word that I'm really, and I guess you could call it too, that I'm really anxious to have her learn. Pop, pop. Pop, pop. And so, and, and I know I've heard it several times, no one else has, but I, I have heard it several times. And so we, we're in that process. And then, then as they get older, you, you train them to do a, a variety of things that are going to be absolutely essential for their well-being in life. You, you, you teach them how to eat, and you, you'll teach them how to walk. And then the day will come, you'll teach them how to ride a bicycle. And, uh, and then you'll begin the process of educational training and you go through all of this training because it's part of the responsibility and the privilege of a parent and grandparent to become involved in training them to deal with the issues of life. When we look at Paul's relationship to the church at Corinth, he, he looks to himself the same way a father would look toward his or her, well, his child or grandchild or great-grandchild. And he realizes that they do not have the advantage of being previously taught the things that are necessary for their church life, for them as a body of followers of Christ. They don't know what to do in an appropriate fashion, and they don't understand what the Lord would have them do. So Paul looks at this as he's writing these letters to them as his opportunity to teach them as a father would teach his child. And so he's been in the process of teaching them a whole variety of different lessons. And then we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and now he's going to say, now here's another lesson that you need to learn. 
And it's really interesting. I think most of the things that we would find in the scriptures that not only the Apostle Paul, but Peter and James and John and uh, Jude and, and Titus, what, what these people would, would express and, and what would be taught in those passages, they would be things we would want to teach the next generation, wouldn't they? We teach our children not to lie because they lie. Judge Judy's comment. How can you tell when a teenager's lying? When their mouth is moving. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you teach them to be kind. One of the things that you emphasize in, in a school setting, you teach kids not to bully. You teach them how to perform athletic events. You teach them how to engage in artistic events. And, and you teach and you teach and you teach. And, and essentially, our lives are made up of, of a process of learning experiences. And we continue to learn. And I, I would just ask you this. Are those things that I've mentioned, and, and I just want to hear from the men. Men, are those things that you would want to teach your children? Did you teach them how to give? For some reason, when it comes to this issue, this is such a touchy issue, it gets real quiet when you say, did you teach your children the biblical way to handle all of the material possessions that God entrusts into their hands. I would imagine many men have never accepted that responsibility to teach their children you need to follow God's pattern for giving the same way you would any of the moral directives that the Lord has given. To be honest, to be kind, to be, to be truthful. When Paul addresses these believers at Corinth, he says to them, you know, the, the best way that I know to teach you is to give you an example. And so he makes a reference to the churches in Macedonia. Now last week we went through this same passage looking at those, those issues related to the example of the Macedonians. And you remember that the three churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were churches that, though they were imperfect, were very, very attuned to the things that the Lord wanted. And so Paul now makes reference to them, and he specifically makes a reference to the Philippians because in, their, in the letter that he wrote to them, he wrote a significant element concerning their involvement in not only supporting his work, and, and the Macedonian churches were the only ones that did that, uh, but also their generosity in helping out with this incredible need that was being manifest at the church at Jerusalem. Because even though the Macedonians were going through a difficult time of trial, the church at Jerusalem was being decimated. They were going through persecution. They, were, they had their goods taken away from them. They, they were essentially living in absolute poverty. And Paul's heart was, we need to help these people. Then what we find out is that the Macedonians did several things that were, were rather uh, 
exemplary. They gave themselves first to the Lord. They understood this. My highest calling is to be yielded to the Lord, to give him absolute authority within my life. And he said, we, we, we weren't even really expecting them to go that way, but they did. And then, with this need that has come up by virtue of what's happening in Jerusalem, we didn't even ask them to become involved in giving. And yet, they asked us. In fact, they insisted that we take this offering that they have now received on behalf of the believers in Jerusalem and take that and send it down for their relief. And then he uses that as the example to the Corinthians. And he says, now, he says, as you follow this pattern that they have become involved in, I want you to understand that this really emanates from a heart of love. This isn't a legalistic requirement. This is the expression of the love that they have. And you had expressed earlier your desire to help. Now it's time to do it. And you need to understand that this is a reflection of love that has been shown to us through the sacrifice of Christ. For your sakes, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. And now it's time to follow through. Not that I want you to be put in jeopardy. That's not what I'm asking. What I am asking is this, that there become an equality. Oh, right away, we think of this this complete balance of monetary and material wealth but that isn't what this is talking about. When you read carefully the context, what he's saying is, I want them to have their needs equally met just as your needs have been equally met. And you need to help, and you need to provide. And so he gives them this instruction, and he says, it's not to to put you under great burden, but it is to help you understand. The Lord requires from his people... First of all, that they give themselves to him, that their hearts are motivated by love in light of what Christ has done, and that they respond in such a way that they care for one another. Is that not a good way to live? Do you teach your kids that? And you know what? Maybe I've been unfair. Maybe part of the reason that that has been a difficult thing for one generation to teach the next is Maybe your dad didn't teach you that. And then you're left wondering, what should I do? Well, today, what I'd like us to do is to share some realities with one another that are going to address propositions. And that's kind of a, a formal way of looking at this. But I did something in your bulletin, and there are no blanks to fill in today. Okay? I'd like you to keep this, And just remind yourself about this from time to time and make it a point to teach your kids these principles that you're going to find and these propositions that we're talking about so that they, in turn, will be able to teach their kids and will be able to see that the the process that the Lord has established is going to be one that we follow and that we follow very, very carefully. Now, the first proposition is this. Giving is a grace extended by God 
to all his people who are willing to accept that grace. One of the things that I appreciated in that little video that we had uh, was the fact that they um, emphasized the grace of giving. When we think about giving, we are probably more inclined to evaluate giving in light of a requirement. And yet, in this passage, did you notice how often Paul spoke uh, spoke about the grace of giving? Look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Oh, Do, do you know what the word grace means? It comes from charis. Uh, sometimes people will name their, their daughters charis. Have you heard of that? My former pastor has a daughter. They named charis. It means grace. It means gift. That's what grace is. It is from the, the theological point of view, from the soteriological point of view. In other words, as it relates to salvation... Grace is God extending to us, based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve estrangement from Him. We deserve, and though today you're not supposed to talk about this, you know, this is something now I'm finding out that, that if, if, you, if you want people to still listen to you, do not ever mention hell. Well, what's the alternative to eternal life? We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God and punishment. But because of His grace, and because of what Christ did for us at Calvary, He is able to extend to us the opposite of what we deserve and maintain His justice by virtue of the fact that the penalty of our sin was placed upon Christ. And we receive the benefit of His righteousness and we're forgiven and we're given life. What he is saying is this. God gave grace to the Macedonians and He will do the same for you. Especially as it relates to this matter of giving. Look at what he says in verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Verse 7, But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. If you are willing to give as the Lord wants you to give in the use of your material wealth, God will extend to you the grace that is necessary to follow through and do it. It's one thing to say, yes, I, I, I really want to give. It's another thing to give. Proposition one. The second proposition. Participation in the grace of giving is not dependent on means, but rather 
on love. Some people will be laboring under the misconception that in order to give, you have to be wealthy. Well, we know that that's not true. You can be wealthy and be generous. You can be wealthy and be so self-focused that you give nothing. You can be poor and be generous, and you can be poor and be so self-focused that you give nothing. So it's not the amount that is really at issue here. What is at issue is, do we genuinely love the Lord enough to recognize that when He has provided for us the material things that are actually in excess of what we need, that we love Him enough to say, this is yours. And, and you've got to be careful here too because we also recognize this. Everything we have is his. And we'll, we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. But there, there are the things over which we maintain a stewardship by keeping the possessions, but then there's also the stewardship of giving. And what the Lord is saying, as he said to the Corinthians, it is love that becomes the basis of the desire to give. We love the Lord. We love His work. Let me ask you, do you love the fact that we have an opportunity to be involved in the lives of 20 children in Nepal who right now are orphaned, who don't know where their next meal is coming from, and we can help 20 of those kids find a place of shelter, of safety, where they will be fed, where they will be cleaned, where they will be provided for, and where they will hear the gospel and by the grace of God accept Christ as Savior and make an impact on that dark, dark nation for the glory of Christ. Do you love that work? Is that not an incredible thing to be part of? And there are ministries like that that are going on all over the world. And believe me, we, we are just one little drop in the bucket, but we're a drop in the bucket. Somebody would say, well, it's 20 kids. You know, you know how many hundreds of thousands of kids need that? No, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands, but I knew, do know we're going to make a difference in 20 kids' lives. And I can't do it all, but we can do some of it. And that's where we are. Do you, do you love one another enough to say that I'm willing to use what the Lord has given me to help relieve your needs? We have the uh, benevolence offering in the entryway, and every Wednesday night when we have prayer meeting, we pass around a little, little um, bag and, and people will put money in that and people will make contributions that we use for the needs of our people. And I want to tell you something. Some of our people have had some incredible needs and still do. Do you love them enough to help them? Well, that's the second proposition. The third is this. Giving is a cheerful demonstration of our submission to the sovereignty of the divine ownership, will, and grace. Now let me hasten to say this. The last phrase is not a reference to an old sitcom. Some of you will get that, some of you will not. 
But in the writing of this statement, what I'm trying to communicate is this. When we recognize that a sovereign God still owns everything, then we are able to put ourselves in the place of stewards. Lord, it's all yours. My house is yours. My car is yours. My golf clubs are yours. It's all yours. Now, you use it as you will. When we talk about a sovereign God, do you you know what we mean? Do you know what we mean by that? He is a God who has freedom to choose to do whatever he chooses to do and will never do anything that is contrary to his own nature. In other words, God can look at some people and say, I am going to bless you with material goods, and he does. And he will look at others and he'll say, I am going to withhold from you material goods, and he does. I am going to give you a good, strong, sound body. And I am going to allow you to be weak and possibly even diseased. I am sovereign. And I choose what I choose. And you might have a response. Well, that doesn't seem fair. And all I can tell you is this. He is God. And he can do whatever he wants. And it will always be right. We are the ones who make the mistakes, not him. Listen to what Paul wrote when he was making a reflection upon this uh, as as he wrote to the Corinthians in, in the first book that he wrote, first letter. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, Why do you boast as though you did not? You know what he's saying? You were born where he wanted you born. You were born when he wanted you born. You were born into the family he wanted you born into. He is sovereign. And so whatever he has brought our way is his. What makes you think you have anything that he did not give you? You're really intelligent. I'm not so intelligent. Should I be jealous? No. It's a sovereign God who made the choice. Now, if I'm lazy, then I've got some work to do. If I refuse to prepare to do the things he wants me to do, then that's my problem that I have to deal with. And by the way, he can help me do that. When we recognize that God is in sovereign control, we know this. Everything we have is His. His will is perfect. And His grace gives me all I need to do what is right with what He has entrusted to me. Proposition three. The fourth. Christian giving is estimated in terms not of quantity, but of sacrifice. We 
we now some of you are going to disagree with this, but we are quite frankly a, a pretty well-to-do congregation. You haven't seen my bank account lately. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Take a trip to Nepal and see what they have and what we have. Take a trip to Belize and drive down a backcountry road and look where people are living in comparison to where you are living and have a meal with them and see what they are eating in comparison to what you and I eat. Some of you may be thinking about that right now. We're a pretty well-to-do church. We gave... Do you all remember when Haiti got hit by the earthquake? On a Sunday, without any previous announcement, on the Sunday after we made an appeal to the congregation, do you remember what we gathered for help to the people in Haiti? It was over $30,000. We have now provided nearly as much for these 20 orphans. And we have the capability to do that. But what if we could have given 60000 Then have we given... It isn't the amount. It's the willingness to sacrifice that becomes the issue. Do you remember the, the, the little widow that Jesus spoke about in the book of Mark? The Bible tells us that Jesus sat where he could watch what the, the people were putting in the offering boxes. And uh, this was at the temple. And of course, their methodology in giving is different than, than ours is today. But people would come and they would put the money in. And it was, I imagine it was probably a thing of some pride when you could really dump a bag full of coins into that box and you'd hear the... And look what I've done. And one after another they came and then this little widow came. And the Bible says she had two little coins. In fact, in our NIV translation... It indicates that these were worth about a penny. And she dropped both of them. Clink. And she walked away, and Jesus looked at her and he said, She has given more than all the others because she gave of everything she had. Now, don't misunderstand. That was not a command by the Lord for her to do that. What she did do, however, that is an essential part of our understanding is she gave sacrificially. Do we give till it hurts a little bit? (laughs) No. See, what Jesus said was this. They gave out of their wealth. I wonder, I just wonder if we have learned the lesson yet that biblical giving, 
means we take a step of sacrifice, that we actually hold something back from ourselves for the Lord's work. Or is it, I've taken care of this, I've gotten this, I have this, now i got this, oh, and I, I still have some left over. What do you say we give that to the Lord's work? Mm. Do you think the Lord is pleased with that? Do you think that honors him? It doesn't. The kind of giving that these Macedonians were involved in was sacrificial. Paul said in the letter that he wrote to them, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, he told them this. He said, nobody else was giving uh, when I was involved in my ministry throughout what is present-day Greece, um, but, but you gave. And, and in addition to that, you, you have given now to this need that exists down in Jerusalem, and, and you keep giving, and you keep giving. And what you have done is you have made sacrifices to see that God's work would go on and it would prosper. But, but the Corinthians don't get that yet. So I'm going to use you as an example to them so that they understand, you know what? If I'm not sacrificing, I'm not really giving. And then it was in that context, and I think I made reference to this last week. It was in that context where the Lord says, but my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Do you understand the context of that verse? We run to that verse and we lay hold of it. Oh, God's going to take care of all my needs. Well, maybe. That's not a general promise. That's a conditional promise. And the condition is that you have been willing to give sacrificially for his work as the Philippians did to whom he had given the promise. Now you can say, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Number five, through sacrifice, oh, pardon me, though sacrifice is a proper aspect of Christian giving, it is not intended to be an oppressive burden. All right? We've been yanking the rope one way. We have to give. We have to be sacrificial. However, we cannot forget the other side, which is this we do have a responsibility to be faithful and ethical in the way we handle our finances in relation to the other truths that God has shown us from his word. If a man does not provide for his own, he is worse than an infidel. You have the responsibility to provide for your family. You should not give to the point where you, you bring into your home deprivation. The Lord doesn't expect that. He does expect some sacrifice. But he does not expect deprivation in the, the necessity of caring for our families. You have debts to pay. You, you have a mortgage. Pay it. Pay it. And by the way, 
if a mortgage has to be foreclosed upon, you have not been set free from your obligation morally. You have been legally, but not morally. And what we owe, we should pay. Boy, that one's going to get me in trouble, isn't it? You do need to think about your future. And it's appropriate to plan for the future. That's all the Lord expects. I want you to give, knowing I gave it all to you anyway. I want you to give to the point where you're willing to sacrifice. You can put some things on hold. But I also want you to be responsible to pay your bills, to provide for your family, to plan for your future, but to do that within the context of what you know is right. Well, I want to plan for my future. I want $2 million in the bank when I retire. Well, good for you. If I go down these roads, I know I'm going to get burned. So, Next proposition. The use to which gifts are directed must be as noble in purpose as that of the gift itself. All right, what do we mean by that? Well, let's take this and think this through. Some of you are going to take seriously what we're talking about today. I, I hope we all do, but I'm, I've been around long enough to know that's probably not going to happen. I hope you will take to heart what God's Word has to say and evaluate. Listen, check out to see if what I'm saying is true or not. Because if this is not true, then you reject it and you come to me and straighten me out. And I'll try to be really nice to you. And if this is God's word, then this is the the pattern by which we should live. But let's be careful that on the receiving end, we as a church use what is given for noble purposes. We're not here to make a monument to ourselves. We're not here to be extravagant. We want to be pleasing. We we want to make this... Are you all comfortable? Okay? Would you like to have a reclining pew? (laughs) Would you like one of those little refrigerators in the side? And you can... (laughs) Ah, the kids down here, they're saying, yeah, yeah, let's do <laughs> Ah, you guys, you are such... All right, now I'm talking to you guys, all right? No, listen, you guys are okay. You make sure your parents get this, okay? Make sure they understand this. You remind them. Not now. We don't live extravagantly. 
You don't have to live to the highest standard possible. See, that's what the world does. The world says, if I can amass enough material wealth, then I can live a really high lifestyle. And the fact of the matter is, that's not necessarily a good thing. (laughs) Boy, do we have examples of that? Guy by the name of Justin Bieber, who has everything he, he could possibly want. What a lost cause. He needs the Lord, is what, what he needs. Uh, what's her name? Um, Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> yeah, I, oh my goodness. You guys know what I'm talking about. Their lives are a mess, but they have all this stuff. Do you know what? As believers, we can fall into the same trap. We can think that having more and more and more and more will satisfy, and you learn it does not. So when we give, we reflect what we ourselves know to be true, and even as we give, if what we as a church are doing is extravagant, or it's making a monument to a person, then that is not a noble cause any longer. Helping orphans is. Seeing too that we have the means to minister to the people within our community and to make an impact for Christ is. And so we have to make sure that what we use the gifts for is as noble as the giving of the gift itself. Next proposition. The supreme argument for our giving is found in the example of Christ, his self-giving and self-impoverishment for our benefit. The creator of the universe, possessor of Everything we consider wealth. God, in all his glory, that was shared with the Father and with the Spirit, was relinquished in glory and in whatever was necessary to empty himself without becoming anything less than God and taking on the form of a man and becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. All wealth to absolute poverty for us. For us. There's the example. That you and I, through his riches, might be made rich. Pardon me through his poverty, might be made rich. What that means is there is an offer to every person in this auditorium that says you can receive all the riches that I, 
Jesus Christ, have provided through my death, burial, and resurrection, if by faith you will trust in me as your Savior. You turn away from your sin. By the way, you turn away from your self-righteousness, which is sin. And you turn and embrace Christ. And at that moment, you become wealthy. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Being given everything that's necessary for life and godliness. And having it all because of Him. There's the perfect example. Final proposition. In light of Christ's sacrifice, nothing I give or do can ever be too much You all recognize uh, the name David Livingston. Lived a while. You guys know who David Livingston was? Sacrificed his life essentially to um, ultimately become a missionary in Africa, spent his life over there, and uh, gave up what could have been a very comfortable life. Here's what he said this is what he wrote in his journal. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paying back a small part of the great debt owing to God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view! And with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Do you ever look at giving as being a privilege? It's what it is. It's a privilege. In the concluding statement that you find in the bulletin, and will come up here on the screen, If you're not indebted to the grace of God, then you are indebted to the justice of God. And before anything you can do that would be pleasing to God, including giving of all of your wealth, it would be of no value unless you receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is where we find forgiveness and that is where we find life. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, do it today. And then, understand your role as a steward. It's a privilege. Let's stand. Father, as we've taken time now to look at this portion of your word. We realize that your word is truth. And Father, sometimes it is just challenging to the point where it seems so difficult to submit our will to yours. And we have to remind ourselves again that your will is perfect. I pray, Father, that every dimension of our lives 
would be lived in such a way that Jesus Christ would be glorified. And I pray, Lord, that in this matter of money, material wealth, our goods, we would follow the biblical pattern of being good stewards for the glory of Christ. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would drive home the truth of the gospel to the hearts that need it. And I pray that as sovereign God, you would draw people to yourself through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.